Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The year was 1948, and the Cold War had settled in. Countries around the world kept a watchful eye on one another, all desperate to have an upper hand in the nuclear arms race. One false move could mean the end of civilization. Even the sunny beaches of Australia weren't exempt from this silent rivalry. The seaside town of Somerton, in particular, harbored some dark secrets. Allegedly, it was a haven for spies. One evening, a man in a brown suit furtively moved through the town's back alleys. Tucked under his arm was a book. He clutched the text like his life depended on it. Maybe because it did. Inside, scrawled in faint, barely legible pencil, was a series of letters. They held the key to secrets of international importance. His job was to make sure they didn't fall into the wrong hands. But a shadow loomed around the corner, expecting his arrival. An assailant in a long trench coat and brim Stetson jumped out in front of him. Before the man with the book could react, the attacker grabbed his arm. Syringe in hand, he jabbed the needle into the man's neck. He could feel the body go limp in his arms. The aggressor pocketed the book discreetly, then lifted the unconscious body onto his shoulder and carried him out to the beach. After depositing the man onto the sand, he vanished into the night. The next morning, beachgoers discovered the body. And so began a decades-long mystery to unravel the true identity of the Somerton Man. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Somerton Man. In 1948, a dead body was found on Somerton Beach outside of Adelaide, Australia. Investigators dug into the case, only to be stumped by both his identity and his cause of death. The clues he left behind, however, suggest that something sinister was afoot. Last time, we covered the story of the Somerton man's discovery, as well as the police investigation that followed. We explored the confusing contents of his suitcase and the discovery of a note in his pocket which read, Tamam should, or it is finished. This Persian phrase led to a book containing a secret code. Today, we'll explore three conspiracy theories about the Somerton Man. First, we'll examine if he was a spy, assassinated with a rare poison. Then we'll consider if the writing inside his book was actually a secret code after all. And finally, we'll investigate whether he was romantically involved with the woman known as Justin, and if their affair resulted in a child. If so, 
DNA could provide the key to his identity once and for all. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. One peaceful morning on December 1st, 1948, two jockeys went for a horseback ride along Somerton Beach. There, they made a gruesome discovery. The body of a man lying in the sand. Police struggled to pinpoint the corpse's identity and what killed him. His autopsy suggested that he'd been poisoned, possibly by himself, as a means of suicide. The coroner expected to find traces of the typical drugs people used, such as barbiturates, a common sedative at the time. But a toxicology report revealed no harmful substances. If it was poison, it must have been one that the coroner couldn't detect. However, it seems odd why someone would go through the trouble of tracking down an untraceable substance to perform suicide. Maybe that's because the Somerton man was murdered, and whoever did it knew exactly how to cover their tracks. This brings us to our first conspiracy theory. The Somerton man was a spy who was killed using a rare poison. In the 1940s, Australia was no stranger to espionage. It was part of the British Commonwealth and fought on the Allied side during World War II. Australia's intelligence agencies regularly intercepted cabled messages from enemy nations, which, according to historian John Blacksland, played a key role in ending the conflict. After the armistice in 1945, though, the world rearranged itself along new ideological lines, capitalism versus communism. The next impending war wasn't going to be fought on the battlefield. 
It would be won by scientists and engineers, each racing to build the best military technology, and each hoping to keep the other side from pushing the nuclear red button first. A big part of that job was making sure no secrets were stolen. In order to stay ahead of the Soviets, the U.S. government established a counterintelligence program called the Venona Project. Its goal was to decode messages sent between the USSR and its network of agents around the world. And it reached all the way to the Australian outback. Thanks to the Venona Project, Australian agents uncovered a so-called nest of spies embedded around the country. It turned out that the Australian Communist Party, which had been banned in 1940, was still operating underground. After some of its members gained access to classified documents, they funneled them back to the Soviet Union. With that revelation, it was crucial for Australia to keep a tight lid on national intelligence. In 1949, one year after the Somerton Man turned up dead, Australia formed the Security Intelligence Organization, their equivalent to the FBI. Its motto was, quote, to reveal their secrets and protect our own. That mantra said it all. Even in Australia, the Cold War ushered in a new era of paranoia, where anyone might be a spy. As far as the Somerton man is concerned, there were details about the case that suggested he wasn't just some anonymous person. He made a concerted effort to hide his identity. If you recall from part one, all of the clothing found on the Somerton man and in his suitcase had the labels removed. This felt deliberate, since at the time, nearly everyone had their names on their clothes to trace them at the dry cleaners. Someone clearly cut almost all the Somerton man's tags off. Only a few items in his suitcase had a name left on them, Keen. But that turned out to be a dead end. It's like the man wanted to throw the police off his scent. In addition, the man's nationality was impossible to place. Some investigators thought that he was British based on the way his hair was styled, but others believed he may have been American, or at least traveled to the United States at some point since his coat was made there. Its stitching indicated it was manufactured in the U.S. and unlikely to have been imported by a retailer abroad, especially because it was individually tailored. That means the Somerton man either got it in the U.S. or bought it secondhand. It's still important to note that even the average person could travel intercontinentally at the time. It's very possible the Somerton man had vacationed or visited family in America prior to his death. A coat from America didn't necessarily prove he was a spy. That's true. But that wasn't the only thing that suggested he had a foreign identity. There was also the unusual tan thread used to mend his pants, which were a UK brand, one that wasn't sold in Australia. So he seemed to travel a lot, which makes it seem like the Somerton man was this international man of mystery. If that's the case, it's hard to imagine what he was doing in Adelaide, a remote city all the way on Australia's southern coast. Well, the answer may lie about 300 miles north at an Air Force complex called Woomera. Woomera is the largest land-based test range in the Western world. It covers 47,000 square miles of flat, dry land, 
roughly the same size as the state of Pennsylvania. Because Australia was part of the British Commonwealth, the base was co-operated by England. The base was established in 1947, one year before the Somerton Man was found. The facilities were highly secretive, since some of Britain's most sensitive military projects were conducted at Woomera. And the reason they needed all that land was simple. They were testing missiles, rockets, and atomic bombs. If that's true, then South Australia likely would have been a hotbed for espionage activity. Think back to the Security Intelligence Organization's motto, to reveal their secrets and protect our own. It's possible that the Somerton man was an Australian spy who knew too much. Maybe he grew loyal to the Soviets and had to be neutralized. Or perhaps he was the Soviet who wanted to defect, but was killed before he could. It's hard to say. That also brings us back to the mysterious way he died. At the inquest, medical experts noted that there wasn't any poison in the man's system, at least not one they could detect. One explanation was that he was given, or consumed, something that broke down immediately, so fast that it left no trace 24 hours after his death. Another option was that he'd injected a substance rather than taking it orally. That might have caused it to decompose rapidly in the liver. But experts couldn't find any signs of a needle puncture, and the condition of the man's liver didn't support that theory either. The coroner eventually consulted a professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide named Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks. Hicks only knew of two groups of substances that fit the description. Both were very rare and extremely dangerous. In fact, at the inquest, Hicks refused to say the names of the poisons out loud. He didn't want the public to know about them. Instead, he wrote them down on a piece of paper and gave it to the coroner. The main drug he suspected was called strophanthin. It was extracted from a plant found in East Africa. Some indigenous peoples even used it to make their arrows poisonous. It only took a small dose to kill someone, and it wasn't detectable with the usual chemical tests. But there was another possibility, and that had to do with the cigarettes found in the Somerton man's pocket. The packaging was for a brand called Army Club, but the cigarettes inside were a different type called Kensitas, which were more expensive. It's unclear why he would have a different brand of cigarettes inside his pack, unless that's how he was poisoned. When the Somerton man was discovered on the beach, he had a cigarette resting on his collar, almost like it had fallen out of his mouth mid-smoke. It's possible that someone switched out his cigarettes and replaced them with ones containing an untraceable poison. It wouldn't be the only time spies used a cigarette to assassinate someone. In the United States, the CIA considered killing communist Cuban leader Fidel Castro by poisoning his cigars. Although there is a third possibility. About a decade later, in 1959, after the official investigation on the Somerton Man was closed, a new witness came forward. Allegedly, they'd seen something the night before the Somerton Man was found. They reported someone carrying an unconscious man over his shoulder along the beach. That could mean the body was deposited there later than authorities initially thought. 
None of the witnesses who saw the man on the beach that previous day got a good look at his face. So it's possible that they were two completely different people and that it was just a coincidence that the Somerton man was later found near the same spot. Had the Somerton man died elsewhere and been brought to the beach later, it makes the possibility of murder far more likely. I have to admit, there's just not enough here for me to definitively subscribe to or reject the theory that the Somerton man was a spy killed by a rare poison. We know of a few, albeit rare, poisons that may have been utilized, though that still leaves a lot of unanswered questions, like his clothing labels. Those make me think he could have died by suicide and just didn't want his identity to be known. It's a toss-up. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being absolutely true, I'd give this theory a 5. I'm not so sure. I think whoever the man was, he was trained to stay anonymous. The two names found in the man's suitcase were carefully selected to throw investigators off his scent. Plus, there's the weird detail of his mismatched cigarettes, like someone switched them out. And I can't think of why else the coroner couldn't find any traces of poison, unless it's some high-level assassination. This theory gets a 7 out of 10 for me. Though these loose ends still leave a lot to consider, there is something else that might help us unravel the Somerton Man. And it lies in the most important clue of all, the Rubiot Code. Coming up, modern code breakers unlock a piece of the truth. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Five months after the Somerton man's body was found, police uncovered a new clue in the case. Tucked away in a secret pocket of his pants was a scrap of paper printed with the words, Tamam Should. The fragment had been torn from a copy of the Rubiat, a collection of Persian poems popular in the 1940s. As luck would have it, a local man discovered the original book the scrap had come from. 
It had been tossed randomly into the back seat of his car while it was parked near Summerton Beach. Inside the book, investigators found a series of phone numbers and an incomprehensible jumble of capital letters. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The Summerton man's copy of the Rubiot contained a secret code. One of those phone numbers led police to a woman they called Justin. Allegedly, she was a nurse who lived close to where the Summerton man was found. After some coaxing, Justin admitted that she'd given a copy of the Rubiot to a man named Alf Boxel four years earlier. They'd met during World War II while he was serving in the Army, but they'd only seen each other twice. But Boxel wasn't the Summerton man. He was still alive and living in a suburb of Sydney at the time. Although, he remembered Justin and still had her gifted copy of the Rubiot. At first, it seemed like Justin had given it to him as a romantic gesture. She'd even written a little note on the title page. Maybe she did the same thing with the Summerton man. But as they dug further, investigators realized there was more to the story. Boxel wasn't just in the army. He worked in an intelligence unit. Boxel was tight-lipped about the nature of his military service. He never revealed why Justin gave him the book. But it couldn't have been a coincidence that the Summerton man turned up with the same book and a code inscribed in it several years later. Given the circumstances, maybe Justin was a spy. In 2013, Justin's adult daughter Kate told an interviewer that her mother could speak Russian. But Justin never revealed where she learned it. Apparently... Justin also admitted to Kate that she'd lied to the police about the Summerton man. Justin knew full well who he was, but she wasn't going to reveal any more than that, not even to her own daughter. Justin did intimate that the matter went higher than the jurisdiction of the police, much higher. After this revelation, many wondered if Justin was involved in some kind of counter-espionage program for the Australian government. Maybe she helped protect national secrets by passing on intel to the military, and the Rubiot was the key. In other words, it could have been a book cipher. That's when a message is encrypted using a specific sequence of letters, words, or page numbers as they appear in that particular text. Once the recipient knows how the code works, they also need the book that was used to create it, down to the exact edition. That's because publishers lay out the text in different ways with each new release. A change in how text is laid out means that a code referencing letters on specific pages of a different edition won't work. People have been using books to transmit codes almost as long as printed texts have existed. During the American Revolution, the British spy Benedict Arnold created a book cipher that relied on a text called Commentaries on the Laws of England. By using this tome, Arnold didn't have to send a separate codebook to decipher his messages. Anyone with the right edition and the knowledge of how the cipher worked could decode the message. So maybe a similar thing was going on with the Summerton man's Rubiot. If you recall from part one, investigators couldn't track down an identical copy of his edition. It appeared that his version was extremely rare possibly even one of a kind. As far as book ciphers go, that's a good thing. 
it means no one else can decrypt the message unless they have that exact copy of the book. There's far less chance of an enemy figuring out your secrets, even if they know how your code works. The rare book, combined with the garbled letters inside, almost certainly pointed to some kind of conspiracy. But the code itself was harder to crack. It contained five lines of capitalized letters, and one of them was crossed out, as if someone had made a mistake midway through. No one, from Australia's premier codebreakers in naval intelligence to the amateur sleuths of the general public, could figure out what it said. However, in 2014, a British detective named Gordon Kramer made a major discovery. Looking closely at the message, he realized that there were some odd markings in between the letters. Maybe the secret to unlocking the code wasn't about what the letters stood for, it was what was inside them. Because within the letters, Kramer found micro-writing. Micro-writing is when smaller letters are hidden inside of bigger ones. Once Kramer recognized the message within a message, he was able to deduce some very interesting things. The micro-writing contained the text, Venom X4621. According to Kramer, that's a reference to the de Havilland Venom, a British fighter jet that was being developed in the late 1940s and possibly tested at the Woomera base. Kramer also claimed that he found micro-writing in Boxall's copy of the Rubiot, the one Justin gave him with a handwritten note inside. He couldn't read what it said, but he claimed that it proved the existence of some kind of spy ring involving all three of them. In the 2000s, Derek Abbott, a professor of engineering at the University of Adelaide, may have validated this theory further. In 1945, about three years before the Somerton Man, another Australian had been found dead. His name was George Marshall, a 34-year-old immigrant from Singapore. Police found his body in a park in Sydney and later determined his cause of death as a suicide by poisoning. And what's more, he too had a rare copy of the Rubiot. Perhaps Marshall was involved in the same world of espionage as Justin and Boxall. Or maybe he was just a fan of the Rubiot. After all, it was popular at the time. Maybe, but it seems clear that the Rubiot was part of some post-war code used to pass intel. Whether that was about the experiments going on at Woomera or something else entirely, I have no idea. But it's a code nonetheless, and I find that incredibly convincing. I give this theory an 8 out of 10. I agree. If this was some romantic gift Justin gave to her male admirers, it still doesn't explain the alleged micro-writing found inside. I'll give this theory a seven. Maybe the Somerton man was a spy after all. In fact, it's worth tracking with Justin a bit further. She was a nurse by day, but maybe she was recruited by Australian intelligence to convey messages by night. And perhaps that's how she met the Somerton man. This has caused some to wonder if they took their relationship a step further. Because right before the Somerton man died, Justin had a son. Coming up, a child that could unlock the Somerton man's true identity. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. 
Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. For a long time, no one knew the true identity of the Somerton man or Justin. The mysterious nurse was kept out of the limelight. Her real name was redacted from police files to protect her from the publicity. But decades later, amateur sleuths took up the mystery. In the late 2000s, engineering professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide uncovered Justin's real name. It was Jessica Thompson. Unfortunately, he didn't get to ask her any questions. She passed away in 2007 at the age of about 86. Still, Abbott felt maybe he could learn more from her family history, so he dug deeper. And soon he found that in the late 1940s, Justin was unmarried, but she'd supposedly been dating a local man named Prosper Thompson. In 1947, about a year and a half before the Somerton Man incident, Justin gave birth to a son. She named him Robin Thompson. Justin said that Prosper was the boy's father, and eventually the couple married. But many have speculated whether Justin was hiding something especially given her cagey behavior when police questioned her about the Somerton man. And when she saw the plaster cast of his face, she nearly fainted. Justin appeared to know exactly who the Somerton man was, so maybe she was also lying about who really fathered her child. This brings us to conspiracy theory number three. The Somerton man and Justin had a son. By the time investigators pieced this information together in 2009, Justin's son Robin had also passed away at about 62 years old. But Professor Abbott tracked down a few photos and soon found that Robin possessed some rather unique features. If you recall from part one, the Somerton man was missing a total of 18 teeth, including two of his incisors. This was due to a rare genetic disorder. As it turns out, Robin was missing his incisors, too. Then there was the matter of his ears. The Somerton man's upper ear hollow was larger than his lower ear hollow. That might not sound too out of the ordinary, until you learn that less than 2% of the population share that trait. And sure enough, Robin was one of them. To make things more complex, Robin was a professional dancer and performed with the Australian Ballet Company. The Somerton man, meanwhile, had unusually high calf muscles and wedged toes that suggested he frequently wore pointed shoes. Experts at his inquest speculated that he, too, had been a ballet dancer. Robin eventually had a daughter with another dancer in his troupe, although they put the baby up for adoption. The child's name was Rachel Egan. She was, potentially, the Somerton man's granddaughter. Rachel grew up not knowing anything about her birth parents, but she always had an affinity for theater and dance, particularly ballet. In the 2010s, 
Derek Abbott contacted Rachel and told her his theory. She was a descendant of the Somerton man. If they could get a DNA sample from his body and compare it to hers, they might be able to confirm his identity once and for all. Rachel agreed, and over the following years, Abbott petitioned multiple times to have the Somerton man exhumed. Unfortunately for him, the request was denied. However, Abbott discovered another way to prove his theory. He found three hairs still embedded in the Somerton man's plaster cast. Abbott gave the hairs to a laboratory at the University of Adelaide, hoping that there was enough genetic material for a positive test. However, the results were inconclusive, and scientists couldn't create a complete DNA sequence from the limited sample. As far as Abbott was concerned, things had stalled on the genetics front. But that might be about to change. In 2021, the Australian government finally exhumed the Somerton man after all. The decision was part of a larger national program to put names to unidentified remains. But exhuming the body of Australia's most famous John Doe was no simple task. On May 18th, a whole crew with heavy machinery pulled up to Adelaide's West Terrace Cemetery. First, they had to remove the concrete vault that covered his coffin. Then they had to be careful not to damage the wooden casket or the body inside. All told, it took 12 hours to get the Somerton man out of the ground. After this process was complete, scientists faced a new challenge, getting the man's DNA. It wouldn't be as simple as swabbing the inside of his cheek. He'd been dead for 70 years, which meant most of his organic matter had deteriorated. What made it even more difficult was the fact that he'd been embalmed. Embalming replaces the body's natural fluids with preservative chemicals, like formaldehyde. It helps make the body last longer, which is what police were hoping for in the 1940s. But unfortunately, it also destroys the proteins that could be used to collect DNA. It's likely that there may not be enough DNA left in the Somerton man to get a viable sample. Even if there is, using it to find the man's identity poses another hurdle. If the Somerton man has a suspected living relative, like Rachel Egan, then authorities could compare his genetic material to theirs. But if there's no match, then they're at the mercy of DNA databases. Australia has a criminal directory with profiles on over 1.2 million individuals, but that's still very limited. Abbott has pointed out that authorities could use genealogical websites like 23andMe to find distant relatives. But until then, the Somerton man's name is anyone's guess. The reality is, to prove that the Somerton man and Justin had a child together requires DNA, and so far, that's been inconclusive. With that said, this story seems more like tabloid gossip than it does truth. I'm giving this theory a 3 out of 10. I'm not so sure. Justin almost certainly knew who the Somerton man was. While her coyness might have something to do with espionage, if they were both spies, I think it's perfectly possible they could have also been romantically involved. The timing of Robin's birth lines up, plus there are too many shared characteristics between the teeth, the ears, and dancing to just write off. I'm giving this theory a 5 out of 10. 
The Somerton man's case is one of the most tantalizing of the 20th century, mainly because even now, there's so many bizarre possibilities. It seems like time just keeps offering up more. Over the years, many people have come forward with their speculations of who the Somerton man was. So far, nothing has stuck. But evidence for the case is disappearing fast. After police closed the investigation, the man's unique copy of the Rubiat was lost. Maybe it was misplaced, or maybe it was intentionally tossed to make sure no one could decode his message. And in the 1980s, authorities destroyed his suitcase because it was no longer needed. If investigators still want to solve this mystery, they'll have to act quickly. Justin's daughter, Kate, still believes her mother was likely involved somehow in the Somerton man's death. If we look outside the theory that he was a spy, there are still other possibilities. Derek Abbott wonders if the Somerton man was involved in some other controversial business, like the black market, which boomed during the wartime years. Perhaps that's why no one claimed the body. Or maybe he was just a troubled person who wanted to die anonymously. Whether a KGB spy or a lonely suicide, the Somerton man made sure that no one knew who he was. It's all the more ironic that his story, with all its twists and turns, has become Australia's most gripping cold case. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Summerton Man, amongst the many sources we used, we found the ABC article Summerton Man by Jessica Beneth extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kotovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.